0: super talk mississippi media production toyota brookhaven services all makes and models that could be why we were voted best service department the past two years come see why exit 40 brookhaven or online at twitterbrookhaven.com great service great savings at toyota brookhaven we deliver
1: howdy howdy it's rhino here and i wanted to say thank you for listening to middays with gerard gibbert here on super talk mississippi
2: Everyone, and welcome to Midday Super Talk, Mississippi. I'm your host, Gerard Gibbert, along with Rhino in the Element Wealth Studios, guiding you through the middle of your day with facts, fodder, and fine music on this Friday Eve. Little rain showers pushed through the area overnight. Nothing severe that I saw, though, although uh, a little the- bit of
1: hail localized.
2: Oh, okay. In the southern portion of the state, looks like it's uh, getting pounded with torrential rains at this point. But uh, I think after this, it's going to be a little nice, isn't it? It's supposed to be. Supposed to be. Usually the way, a little cold front moves through. We are headed into what typically is arguably the most delightful month of the year. I think a lot of people would also indicate that October fits that description, but May is always a delightful month, looking forward to that. We're here in the Element Well Studios, uh, Southern District Commissioner Dane Maxwell on the program at 10.37 today, and then at 11.05, Rachel Culver, first-time guest, a contributor to the College Fix. So, you guys know I share lots of uh, stories of some of the wackiness, shall we say, going on across America's college campuses. Much of that I gleaned from the college fix. Started, I guess, subscribing to that, paying attention to the digital publication about three, four years ago, four years or so ago. And and they, for the most part, they raise revenue from private donations. So I give them a little money because I believe in in their work. And, uh, and so I got the traditional solicitation, annual solicitation. It's probably more than annual, but I don't know that I keep up with it. And uh, I just mentioned to the fundraiser that I enjoyed their work and that uh, it often was a resource that I tapped to share with our audience here on the program. So they said, hey, would you like to have somebody on? And they and I said, absolutely. So we, anyhow, we got it all worked out with our content director, Alex Payton, Rachel Culver, a contributor. And we've got a couple of topics we'll cover. Looking forward to that. So, for example, the story we've talked about a couple of times this week regarding the Loyola University Chicago professor who said that if you keep a clean, tidy, organized kitchen and pantry, let's say you're classist, racist, and sexist. Those are elements of white supremacy. By the way, I shared this with a couple of my black friends. They said, what? I like my kitchen to be clean. Well, of course. This is white liberals once again acting as proxies for people. And they don't know what the hell they're talking about. About 99.999% of the time. There's so many examples of that. No, that's not what we want. That's not what we believe. (laughs) And again, I'm going out on a limb and guessing this professor... Brings home quarter million a year and has guaranteed tenured employment. We did look up at 65000 a year to attend Loyola University of Chicago, right? I think it's sixty five grand. Yeah,
1: 65788 seven eighty eight. if okay. I remember
2: correctly. So, Rachel Culver, contributor to the College Fix on the program today. Jerry Springer, you know who he is? iconic talk show host I guess you could call it almost every show sort of deteriorated into uh, fist or cuffs didn't it
1: yeah that's an example of leaning into what really makes you tick as far as a, an an engagement an entertainer yeah. because early on in his career he was much like any other talk show host where he'd have entertaining guests might be a little wacky a little weird but never really that off the wall but then he had a string of a couple that were just wild and
2: he got a ton of attention and then his his show pretty much became that shtick went into syndication i believe oh yeah was uh quite popular he passed away sorry to say the age of 79 the show launched in 91 I didn't know it went that far back and ran oh, yeah. for a couple of decades. That was the the heyday of the TV talk show. Yeah, you're right. The peak, it uh, the publicist says, Jerry's publicist, who informed the news media about the passing of Jerry Springer, said that the peak popularity occurred in 1998 when it beat the Oprah Winfrey show in the ratings 12 million viewers. Wow. It was a spectacle. Oh, yeah. Every
1: day. And there were always accusations of rigging it for something to go wrong or coordinating with the guests on craziness, but I don't think it was 100% of the time. Like you, you, You can see that some of them, they really were acting up just to get their 15 minutes of fame, but... There were sometimes there was legitimate beef between people on that stage.
2: <laughs> yes, that's right. There were, and obviously they would they would uh, invite guests on that they knew were confrontational, and a lot of times it was, oh, they're married or they're dating and you're cheating on them. It's that kind of stuff, right? That uh, it's just a spectacle. We're we're vo- a voyeuristic society, and we get we like to watch that stuff. And of course they had the security the big old bouncers were always there had to move in between somebody would come up and uh, start attacking or make a run at a guest <laughs> which
1: he wound up with his own show
2: uh, Oh really the security guard I Steve I think was his name it Is a big old boy
1: Oh yeah he had his own talk show because that's how popular Jerry Springer got that even his own <laughs> his security guy for his main show got his own show <laughs>
2: Oh, man. Well, 79. Jerry Springer. Sorry to uh, see him go there. A lot of entertainment through the years. The uh, The U.S. House. We discussed this yesterday, and after the show, Kevin McCarthy, I guess you could say, had a bit of a victory. His bill, the spending well, I mean, he bill. Got it done. He got it done. And again has uh, a very thin margin, as you know, in the House. What a nine-seat majority, I believe, and thus can only lose five to get legislation passed. It was a 217-215 vote. Uh, Now, that means a couple were missing, but that's typical. Nonetheless, four Republicans did not vote for the bill. Tennessee's Tim Burchett, Florida's Matt Gates, Colorado's Ken Buck, and Andy Biggs of Arizona voted against the bill, and that's the maximum number he could have. So just by hair, by nose, as they say, this thing passed on party lines. Burchett said the measure did not include enough real deficit reduction I agree and pointed that out yesterday. This really, I guess, takes action against future increases in spending relative to today. More than it does, let's look at current revenue and spending that's on track to produce a $1.7 trillion deficit. did produce a $1.5 trillion deficit, but we shared a couple of days ago, According to the latest information from the CBO, six months into the fiscal year, we're already at one point one trillion deficit. Now you can't extrapolate that and say, well, we'll double that. And that's just because of the way revenues flow into the Treasury. Now it's after tax day, you'll see revenues increase. But CBO is projecting a one point seven five trillion dollars. They have revised it upward. It was one point four and the president runs around and brags about he cut the deficit. Uh, But he really didn't, because he compares it to the year where he ballooned the deficit. It's so duplicitous. Can't we just tell the truth? What's so hard about that? You know why they don't? Because they know, unfortunately, the voters don't fact-check, if you will. But we do here, on this program, so he got it done, but of course... What is the fate of that bill as it heads over to the Senate? And what does Joe Biden say about it? We'll discuss that when we return in the Element Well Studios on Midday. Stay with us.
0: with Gerard Gibbert let's do this on super talk Mississippi let's go.
2: In the Element Well Studios, the Dow. It's off its highs. It was up as much as 240 earlier in the day, but it is in the green, sitting at 120. The NASDAQ is where you see lots of positive action and lots of green, and that's because Meta, the parent company of Facebook, reported uh, much better than expected results. So they've been shedding. Their workforce. It's because
1: they finally quit playing around
2: in virtual reality. That's true. And got back to focusing on the main thing there that makes some money. But ad revenues up, expenses down, had a better-than-expected quarter. Market responded positively to that. And that's after, a day after, Microsoft reported rather robust earnings results. And so two in a row... And Google as well, but uh, not quite to the level that Microsoft excited the market. So the Nasdaq, the tech-heavy Nasdaq, presently up one point four four percent, a hundred and seventy points. And man, look at uh, look at Meta Go. It is up thirty bucks today. Microsoft is up $7.55 and that's after climbing by $21 I think is what it closed at yesterday it is now selling at 300 bucks over 300 302 so apple as well up $2.76 it is selling uh, presently the price 166 so good news if you've got Positions in those uh, big tech, so-called big tech stocks, you're liking what you see there. Good for your portfolio. You know, I, I think I may have mentioned I had a feeling Microsoft was going to do better with when the analysts were sort of downplaying their results. And so I did add to my position prior to earnings, and that turned out to be a, a good financial move. Let me be clear I make bad financial moves as well. that's the, the greatness of the market though. It's beautiful honestly. it, it really is. It's winners and losers. it's great. right now you're feeling good though you're a winner if you're invested in these uh, in these particular stocks now also on the economic front, something I think we all should be aware of, and paying close attention to. And that's just the headwinds facing the economy in this country. GDP comes in at uh, a rather disappointing 1.1% annual rate. 1.1%. Not very good. Now, a lot of forecasters had it coming in a little better than that, but I will say the Atlanta Fed, So all the Fed bank governors typically will weigh in and predict GDP before it's officially calculated and released. The Atlanta Fed called it, said 1.1%. Unbelievable. So I think we got other economic headwinds on the horizon. The news from the housing industry wasn't that great a couple of days ago. No surprise there with interest rates being up, and we're starting to see... Uh, Consumer spending habits are starting to change. Companies are reporting. They're sitting on inventory. Economists are paying attention to that. That typically means they start lowering prices to liquidate that inventory, which would, of course, serve to combat inflation. So supply versus uh, demand scenario, which is what drives markets. But I think there's more on the horizon we need to be aware of. First Republic Bank, by the way, on its last breath, stock has plummeted about 35% this week. And if you look at the company's balance sheet, I'd say its fate is imminent, that it is going to fail. And this will rock the markets, and it will rock the economy, and it should rock our political world as well. The Dow now up 214, by the way. So I think there's more to come there from the banking sector that uh, we should be paying attention to. All right, so this bill gets passed yesterday, the GOP spending bill, the Limit, Save, Grow Act, is how it is styled. Chuck Schumer says it's got no chance in the Senate, and Joe Biden whomever is speaking on his behalf or, or comprising his thoughts for him. Well, <laughs> can't argue you they don't say. have a plan now. Right. Um, he goes on to say that it is dead on arrival, no chance of becoming law. House Republicans have passed a bill that cuts veterans' health care, education, meals on wheels, and public safety takes away health care for millions of Americans, and sends manufacturing jobs overseas while they fight to extend the Trump tax cuts for the wealthiest and profitable corporations. That's what Corinne Jean-Pierre said in a statement. There's so much wrong and inaccurate (laughs) in that statement. You
1: can say that about everything that comes out of her mouth.
2: Jeez. President Biden will never force middle class and working families to bear the burden of tax cuts for the wealthiest.
1: No, he just forces you to bear the burden of out-of-control
2: inflation because he's an idiot. <laughs> Pretty much. The president has made clear this bill has no chance of becoming law. And she goes on. This is this is uh, rich, isn't it? She cites an old quote from... Former President Ronald Reagan, about the importance of the U.S. meeting its obligations. In our history, we have never defaulted on our debt and failed to pay our bills. Congressional Republicans must act immediately and without conditions to avoid default. Oh, my gosh. This class warfare that they incite, it's exhausting after a while. They thrive on it. They feast on it. It's they, I think they're giddy over it, honestly. You can just feel like they love just fomenting this division between the economic classes. And there's just so much wrong in here. So, by the way, if you ask people who are receiving Medicaid and SNAP benefits, please go out and work. At least go out and look for a job. That's how they describe it as taking away health care from millions of Americans and Meals on Wheels. Now, I don't know where the hell they get this idea that this bill sends manufacturing jobs overseas. I have no idea how they connect those dots. I'm still trying to figure that out. I, I can't figure it out.
1: Is it because it's not pro-union?
2: It could be. I'm just trying
1: to twist my brain into pretzels like a Democrat
2: would. Well, I mean, if you look at, uh, okay, rescinding student loan payment relief, how does that do that? Canceling the $80 billion to fund 87,000 new IRS agents? How does that do that? Maybe it's they're just basically saying, well, because we're going to return to the spending levels we had just four months ago. Just four months ago that all these things are going to happen. These will be the consequences that they spell out. And then imposing a 1% cap on future spending, which basically says, no, we can't do that. we got to keep spending way more than that. We can't cap it at 1%. We can't return to where we were just a short four months ago. And, of course, all the green tax credits included in the so-called Inflation Reduction Act, uh, there's a call to repeal those in this bill. I can't connect the dots and see how that cuts veterans' health care or education. But it's it's always about trying to instill this fear in people. We can't cut any of that! And the next thing you know, it's $31 trillion in debt. Now, And you got a
1: White House press room full of clapping seals just sitting true. there drooling on themselves because they have to either submit their questions beforehand or they're not going to get
2: answered. <sighs> we'll get to that later, but we have President Cheat Sheet, should we call him that now? Had a cheat sheet. Knew exactly the question that was going to be asked before the presser he had with, uh, was it the Korean president, South Korean president? Yeah. Knew the, knew the reporter, already had that scripted, the question and the answer, and a camera caught the cheat sheet card. What? You're the president of the United States? We ask more of that of elementary students, do we not? That you should be able to stand up in front of people and speak off the cuff without having a cheat sheet? That's disturbing. We're coming right back with Dane Maxwell, Southern District Commissioner for the Public Services. Stay with us. Welcome back, everyone. Midday, Super Talk Mississippi in the Element Well Studios. Joining us now, Dane Maxwell, Southern District Commissioner for the Mississippi Public Service Commission. Commissioner, good to see you, sir. Good to see you. All right. We wanted to have you on first to get just an update. Well, I don't think we've talked to you since the uh, legislature is signed. He died. Uh, anything in particular that came out of Mississippi State Capitol that affected uh your world
3: yeah we actually had a great session this year um as as the psc is concerned we had uh, a bill that moved uh us out of the robocall telemarketer side and moved it over to the attorney general side which was really a good thing for mississippians because it really wasn't supposed to be in our wheelhouse. We didn't have uh, the authority over them. And so this moves it over to her uh, office where she has the authority to go after them, find them, and arrest them. And and that's what we've been needing. We worked on that, and we were successful in getting that done. And uh, I think it's going to be a great thing for us to effectively fight the robocalls and telemarketers.
2: Gotcha. What about uh, the progress on rolling out rural broadband. I know that touches you guys a little bit. Of course, Sally Doty that runs the BEAM organization is probably more entrenched in that effort. Anything you can report from the Public Service Commission on that?
3: Well, it's still moving ahead, and I still think that we are doing doing a lot of good work on that end as far as expanding to residents that have no service or low, low service, a yeah. little bit of service that, you know, it, it actually once the beam off. It started and that's what Sally runs. It, it took it completely away from the PSC too. Okay. So, uh, I keep up with occasionally because Sally and I are friends and, and we talk, but, uh, it really doesn't touch us at all anymore. So, but, you. you know, we had a big role in the beginning of it, uh, putting out nearly a billion dollars into the economy here, uh, with the, uh, with the co-ops and moving uh, those guys into that uh, arena. And yep. they, I can tell you this, they are doing very well. They're doing very, very well. We've got more fiber being laid uh, in Mississippi than ever in our history.
2: Yeah, I, just driving around, uh, when I'm traveling to the remote sites, sometimes on uh, kind of the rural back roads, you you see it. I mean, you see the trenching going on. You see the big big orange conduit. Uh, that is used to house the yep. fiber. Yeah, so you see it going on. Construction underway. Uh, it's
3: it's exciting, and and you wouldn't believe how many hunting camps I've had people call me and tell me we have internet at our hunting camp.
2: <laughs> that's a big deal in Mississippi. Well,
3: it's working. We know rule Mississippi.
2: That's right. That's a big deal in uh, in Mississippi for sure. You know, I I wanted yeah. to ask you about some of this crazy federal policy that's coming. Uh, out of the Biden administration and how that might be impacting the Public Service Commission, your work, uh, your your uh, your procedures, your policies, et cetera, your regulator, regulatory uh, efforts. But these Green New Deal credits, as I like to call them, are you guys involved in this in any way? Are you involved in the administration, in the tracking of that, measuring of any of that?
3: Oh, you know, obviously we follow it. And, um, you know, I, I, I just have a hard time even talking about this because they're just doing the everything they can to kill coal. <laughs> and, you know, I'm a big diversity guy, right? So I, I believe we should invest in all kinds of, of energy. And, and I, even though I don't believe where technology is where we, need it to be in order to go full solar uh the battery has to catch up with that solar panels yeah um and i don't think it's affordable but i'm i will support any kind of renewable energy as long as it doesn't fall back on the ratepayers paying for it if you want if you want solar get solar um right. but i don't think we should have uh, the other ratepayers paying for it and on top of that um in 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 our work that we do, we're, we're really focusing, or at least I'm, my office is really focusing on working with, uh, those who build these, uh, these small nuclear reactors. I think Mississippi needs to jump on that as soon as we can because it's clean and it's affordable and it's reliable. And so we are following this. I mean, the, the, you know, we modern, uh, monitor those things and stuff, but Really, he, his efforts to kill this coal is going to end up coming, hitting the, uh, the ratepayers in the pocket. And, you know, we can't control the cost of energy. Right. Um, all we can do is, is, is it's like your grocery bill, when your grocery bill goes up, they are going to drive us into the ground if we don't change administration
2: And natural gas as well, right? Because just, just to, within the last couple of weeks, they're proposing all sorts of new rules affecting power plants. And a, a good number of the power plants in this country derive their source from natural gas. Is that not correct?
3: That's right. They, they, this is a, this is this clean power plan 2.0, and, and it all it is is it is the left's uh, wish list. It's yeah. green new deal, and they're going to cost those power plants an enormous amount of money like they did last time they were in power, putting scrubbers on those units. Right. It costs money to do that, and those power companies, they get their resources, they get their funding from the ratepayers, and so that's ultimately who will pay it. I'm going to fight it. I'm going to fight everything I can about it. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, he carries a big stick in the, being in the Fed side, and so some of those things we, we just get shoved down on us and mandated, and we have to live with them.
2: Yeah well uh it's it's a concern when I when I read the the various analysis of that it's exactly that's exactly what uh, reporters and and analysts in the energy industry said is that this would impose an enormous cost on the the uh, electricity producing industry utility industry and they would in fact pass that on to ratepayers uh, to absorb it to fund it it's already yeah. gone and, through and, the roof and,
3: and the thing about it is, is they want to, you know, but he wants the federal government, for example, to go, um, to go carbon free uh, by 2030. It, and and I want you to, I want the listeners to clearly understand this. That is never going to happen. It will not happen in our lifetime. It's all, uh, it's all just a bunch of fodder and talk. Just to give them billions of dollars, they're actually doing a study now to how they can do electric vehicles for the military. Yeah. Now, you know, how are you going to electrify uh, M1 uh, A1 br- uh, tank? You, you're not going to do that. And the idea of taking the United States of America to carbon free will never happen in our lifetime. And it's ridiculous to think that everybody, every other country is going to do the same thing. It, right. It's not going to happen.
2: Yeah, Jennifer Granholm, Secretary of the Energy, uh, said that, testified on the Hill uh, just yesterday, or day before yesterday, saying, yeah, I envision an all-electric military by 2030. 2030? Yeah. It's uh, insane, in my view. I know you've got a lot of experience in uh, presidential politics, worked on the Trump campaign in in, uh, 2016. What do you think? Going into 24, what do you see?
3: Well, uh, I, I, I worked uh, for President Trump in 2016 and in 2020. Yeah. And, uh, you know, all numbers don't lie. I mean, right now, uh, Biden's upside down big time. Uh, the thing about that is, you know, I, people get tired of hearing Trump say this or say that. But at the end of the day, He's the only one willing to stand up and take a hard fight and go through what that is, what he has to do to win for us. Every one of his policies, you can't argue. And uh, and and I'm friends with him. I worked with him. I traveled with him. I'm I'm just going to support him. And I think uh, most of Mississippians will too. His popularity rating here is is out the roof. Yeah. Uh, but he's still leading nationally. Um, and we'll, so we'll have to see. But regardless, whoever the Republican nominee is, is, I'm going to
2: support them. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I checked a real clear politics poll, of course, which is an average of a number of polls. And, and uh, it, it shows Trump and DeSantis, assuming DeSantis jumps in the race, uh, leading Biden in a hypothetical matchup by just under 2%. Each of them lead Biden by about 2%. So I'm sure that's going to drive both of them. Uh, as we approach the the election here, Dane, Commissioner, always good to talk mm-hmm. to you, sir. Appreciate you coming on and, <clears throat> and sharing your insight. We'll talk soon. Thank you. We're coming right back in the Element Well Studios. Rachel Culver, contributor to the College Fix, at eleven oh five.
0: Days with Gerard Gibbert. Keep rolling. Three, two, one. On Super Talk, Mississippi.
2: Element Well Studios where REM says they're losing their religion. (laughs) There's like YouTube videos when they're performing that live and there's like what five hundred thousand people in the audience. Giant audiences, right? REM was huge at one point. They were. Huge. 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 Kind of uh what'd you call them a punk rock man? Sorta. Uh I would say alt rock, maybe. Okay.
1: But it wasn't even really alt-rock. It was just kind of its own thing.
2: Okay. Well, seriously, that the crowds that they attracted back in their heyday, phenomenal. Big old deals. That was still at a point in
1: time where the music industry was allowing experimentation. Nowadays, if you're going to experiment musically or lyrically, you're going to have to pretty much do it independently.
2: Yeah, that's true.
1: Everything else is going to get processed through a... Giant rack of technology to make you sound better than you actually do. That's true. Uh,
2: AI for music, so to speak. AI filters. Hmm. Still no internet service. Two miles behind Paul B. Johnson State Park, Highway 49 South. You know, I've I've commented that I sort of have mixed feelings about this. On the one hand, the uh, there's value potentially in lighting up every address in the state in the country on the other hand all we did is add it onto our debt we don't have the money to pay for That's the problem we we've, we've spent all our money such that at the federal level such that we spend more than we take in and we produce these 1.5 trillion dollar deficits we're broke from a balance sheet perspective and so can we cut something else because you can't you get pushback on that so I might jump on board with the idea that this is a a good investment for taxpayers but on the other hand where does the money come from does that question ever get asked Never that I see. And the president basically saying, I'm not going to talk to Kevin McCarthy about these proposed spending cuts is indicative of that. And they believe that, no, 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 we just need to raise taxes. We need to collect more. And they continue to harp on this inaccurate idea about the so-called Trump tax cuts which just uh, benefited the wealthy and the most profitable corporations. And I just say again, well, they benefited the people who actually pay the taxes. Tax cuts benefit people who pay taxes. And we've evolved into a scenario where more than half the people in this country, half the households, not people, households, pay no taxes, no income taxes to the federal government. You know what the left argues when you point that out? Well, they pay Social Security and Medicare. Right, but that doesn't fund the functions of the general functions of the federal government, the core functions of the federal government. That's actually you paying in, not necessarily to fund your benefits when you enroll in those programs, but to secure your place, because people that are working while you're receiving those benefits, are funding them, but by paying in, you're punching your ticket, if you will, to participate in those programs. They they conflate that with income taxes. Well, leftists
1: aren't usually fans of nuance. <laughs> That's true. Very, very
2: true. So, again, I would argue that there are a lot of people here in Mississippi that say, you know, that federal government is just... Got to rein in spending. They're fiscally irresponsible. Racking up these deficits. Hey, give me some rural Internet. And again, I, I get it. You you want that. And, and you, like Dane said, the commissioner, he's received calls from folks saying, man, this is great. I got Internet at, at uh, my hunting camp. Just keep in mind that the only reason you do is because we added to the federal debt <laughs> to fund those projects. I'm just pointing that out. When do we say no? And until we start saying no, the deficits are going to remain out of control, and we're going to continue to add to the debt. And e- So get this. Even with this GOP bill that cuts spending, that passed, that passed in the House, I read you what the President said. It cuts out all this just litany of benefits, right? People dying in the streets if we pass this bill. The CBO says this still, even this bill, were it to pass, we still add $15 trillion to our debt in the next 10 years. 50%. That's what this bill, this so-called spending cut bill, coming right back with Rachel Culver, contributor to the College Fix. Welcome back, everyone. Hour two of midday's Super Talk Mississippi live in the Element Well studios on this Friday Eve. And joining us now, Rachel Culber, contributor to the College Fix. Rachel, thanks for joining us today.
4: Thank you so much for having me.
2: Well, I have been a uh, a regular consumer of information from the College Fix, and uh, every day it seems like something appears in my news feed there, in my email, that I just scratch my se- head and say, can it get any crazier? And I think the answer to that is it can, and it continues to do so. But tell us a little bit about yourself.
4: Yes, so I am a senior in college at the Master's University, and I'm studying political theory. And it's a Christian liberal arts university in Santa Clarita, which is about 45 minutes north of L.A.
2: Most folks in Mississippi that comprise the majority of our audience here would say, I didn't know there would be a Christian college in California.
4: It's actually one of the best universities in the united states arguably for christian education because not only do we get an undergraduate degree we also get a minor in biblical studies and then we're trained to go out and be excellent in our field and particular to one of the articles i'll be discussing today we offer a degree in computer science with the emphasis in artificial intelligence,
2: that is awesome. Of course, you, you can't uh, consume any sort of news today without seeing artificial intelligence somewhere embedded in an article, and it's uh, kind of the new Renaissance going on on Wall Street as well. But you just wrote an article. I'll read the title: "One Christian University Has Decided to Welcome Chat GPT AI Trends." Here's why. I read the article; it was it was excellent. Tell us about your uh, your thoughts here.
4: Yes. So first off, for those who may not be familiar with ChatGPT, it's a type of artificial neural network known as a predictive learning model. And so through statistical algorithms, if you ask the chatbot a question, within seconds, it will provide you immediate answers. And several different faculty and staff at our school have been a little bit concerned with plagiarism and whether or not students will be using this um, for exams or to answer homework questions. And while that is a concern, I think there are several other things to consider. Um, With the presence of CHAT-GPT, it requires that students exercise discernment and wisdom. Um, Elon Musk even mentioned that there are concerns with bias especially when you ask the the system particular questions. And so students are then required to, once they receive the response, they have to then double-check the answers with what they're learning in the classroom. Hmm.
2: Interesting. So I guess the bottom line is that you, the university, the community of the university, support in general the the use of of this tool. And it's not going away, as you well know. Uh, We're just getting started, honestly. Um, But there's got to be some, I guess, some checks, some balances there.
4: Yes, and Professor Crater, who is one of the computer science professors here at the university, he even used AI in his graduate program to use it to translate um, the Greek and Hebrew languages um, into English. And so it can be used for good. Hmm. And there are several different business organizations that are using the system to help improve their learning. And you can even ask the prompt, provide five tips to help me improve in a particular area in my field. Now, with that being said, there also are some some concerns for political bias as well. If you ask the chatbot to explain um, racial disparities, it It will provide five points for white people to work on re-education and relearning their (laughs) white supremacy. But then if you also ask it questions about maybe Hispanics or black Americans or Latinos, the chatbot will say, I'm sorry, I cannot comment on that. So while there are some really good things that can be learned from this sort of artificial intelligence, it also requires again of active discernment because there is bias present yeah. in the system.
2: And in fact, uh, there are members of Congress who are considering legislation that would regulate artificial intelligence, and that's their central concern is the, is the inclusion of some sort of predetermined biases into, of the bots into the tools into the technology itself.
4: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and Elon Musk recently participated in an interview with Tucker Carlson and Musk mentioned that he might create something called Truth GPT. Yeah. So rather than being concerned about the the bias standards, he would then Musk would create a system that would ensure those using the system are going to get what is true and not twisted. Yeah.
2: Yeah, we need that across uh, the entire spectrum of society, honestly, not not just in artificial intelligence, uh, as you well know. Let's talk about another article you wrote, A Supreme Court Decision Allows Biological Male to Run Girls' Track in West Virginia. That's something we discuss here on the program uh, at length, so tell us about this.
4: Yeah. So back on April 7th, the Supreme Court handed down a motion that allowed males to run in female sports. And this lawsuit began back in 2021 when West Virginia passed the Save Women's Sports Act. And if you've heard, uh, Becky Pepper Jackson, a transgender biological male, wanted to compete on the female track and cross country teams. And so through a series of lawsuits um, the lawsuit was then brought before the Supreme Court and the West Virginia Attorney General and the Alliance for Defending Freedom asked the Supreme Court to vacate an injunction that was placed by a lower federal court, which basically neutered the law and the West Virginia Save Women Sports Act could not go into effect. Wow. Now, even though the Supreme, yeah, and even though the Supreme Court right now um, did not allow the Save Women's Sports Sports Act to continue, the lawsuit is not over. The Alliance for Defending Freedom is um, supporting and working with many other groups around the states, and West Virginia is not the only state who's in this battle. the Kansas, state of Kansas will have a, a Save Women's Sports Act going into effect July 1st. And then there are also 20 additional states who are in this same process of trying to enact a Save Women's Sports Act and preserve the equal opportunity that women deserve.
2: Yeah, including our state, the state of Mississippi, as well. This is an interesting matter that seems to have just gripped the nation, honestly. And and we're seeing very strong opinions on both sides of the argument and this is one of those issues that is sort of bifurcating the states. You have some states that are not only allowing it, they're sanctioning it. Uh, and that is the participation in sports by athletes, just by the basis on the basis of how they identify. In particular, it's a problem when it's a biological male that seeks to compete in female sporting competition. We actually had Riley Gaines, the University of Kentucky NCAA spinner, uh, swimmer, on the program twice talking about her first-hand experience with that.
4: Yeah, and it's sad to see that because when you see these phenomenal, talented female athletes who have spent their entire lives to run a race to compete in a track competition, to wh- whatever sport that may be, and then a man, a biological male comes and takes that from them, it basically reveals that all the work that female athlete has done has been worthless. Yeah. And when we look at Title Nine, Title Nine provides a clear protection for women in sports, and so does the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment. And in the Supreme Court's action, Justice Alito and Justice Thomas dissented, saying this question is going to come before the court again, and we will have to reconcile and wrestle with these questions and realize that females are protected, and there's no doubt about that.
2: Yeah, the president said he'd veto any any, uh, legislation, any measure coming out of the Congress, mainly the House, of course that would uh, essentially confine athletes to participate in the sport that corresponds with their biological gender. Senator Tommy Tuberville from Alabama is introducing such legislation over in the Senate, and he's already been told that's, that's dead, that's not going anywhere. Why do you think we're so divided on this topic? What is it about, in general, broad Democrat support for this?
4: I think there are several things to consider here. Number one, culturally understanding that those who reject biological reality and reject God's design um, for creation are going to doubt and then protect and codify transgender yeah. support. And that's what we're seeing. It's not only a, a partisan political divide, but it's also a cultural divide. In, Do you uphold absolute truth, or do you believe in subjective morality?
2: Yeah, that's an excellent point. It's exactly what Riley Gaines said. She said, uh, this is uh, ignoring, denying objective truth, which I completely agree with as well. Mm -hmm. Rachel, it's been a pleasure having you on the program. Uh, Hopefully we'll talk some more at some point. Uh, You're very bright, very articulate, and I wish you all the best in your career. Thank you.
4: Thank you so much.
2: You got it. We're coming right back in the Element Whale well Studios.
0: Middays with Gerard Gibbert. What? What? This yeah. is
1: yeah. so
0: awesome. On Super Talk Mississippi. I'm dizzy
2: We are back in the Element Well studios. It is midday, super talk Mississippi. Don't forget, Sports Talk Mississippi will be on the square in Oxford tomorrow for the annual Double Decker Festival. There's a ton of things happening at this year's Double Decker Festival, including music from southern rock band Blackberry Smoke and the Magnolia State's very own Chapel Heart. Sports Talk, the boys will be downtown Oxford tomorrow. So that was a great uh, interview. I really appreciate uh, Rachel coming on, student, very bright, very articulate, makes you feel good about our future when you interview and speak to young folks like that on the college campuses. And the College Fix, uh, the the organization has a number of student contributors. And And I suspect that many of those learn about some of the stuff that's going on. They've got I mean, it's more of an investigative, journalistic outfit, if you will. They ex- expose a lot of the craziness that's going on across America's college campuses. And uh, Rachel's one of the student contributors. And both of those articles she wrote were, were excellent. This, this whole gender sports deal is totally nuts. Who would have thought we'd even be having a debate about this? And it's so polarizing. I mean, unequivocally, without hesitation, the president, others on the left say, oh, absolutely, we got to let males compete with females in sports. That's essentially what they're saying. What they'll tell you is, oh, no, we've got to accommodate transgenders. No, what you're saying, what you're sanctioning, what you're supporting is biological males competing with biological females. But yet... You hold yourself as the party of fairness and equity. What the heck is equitable about that? Then then they start arguing well, they really don't have a physical advantage. Huh? I really would like to see some bona fide scientist testify. No, nah, there's no difference. The physiology, the physical makeup, the strength, other physical skills, they're really equal between a woman and a, and a man.
1: If there were really no difference, you would see a sharp rise in female-to-male transitioners competing in male sports.
2: That's true. That's absolutely true. It's a good point. I think about, you know, my favorite pastime, golf. Now, there are young females who could whip me that are really good. There's no doubt. But in the same age group, no chance. And the few times you've had these kind of for entertainment purposes, high ranking on the global rankings, female golfers compete with the males, no chance. Not even close. I wonder why. Maybe there's a physical difference. Can we not accept that? Is it's it's like taboo to just accept that? Incredible. Something else the college fix reported. Not far from here, the University of Alabama in Birmingham. Now, you and I have run across stories about these sprawling DeI departments in corporate settings as well as colleges, the one that academias ate up with it. Oh big time. The one that comes to mind that you you shared with uh, on the show was the University of Michigan had more Dei staff than they do history professors something. remember that something Ohio State like that. has
1: 137 people on staff dealing with Dei.
2: Unbelievable. So, at the University of Alabama, Birmingham, they've got one that earns thirty-four grand a month. $407,000 annually. One of the top DEI officials at the University of Alabama. And this is, uh, let's see if I can find the name here. Last name, yeah, Mona... F-O-U-A-D, a medical doctor, a nationally recognized leader in health disparities research, earns thirty-four grand a month. She works uh, with the UAB's <coughs> Office for Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion to broaden and strengthen the links between university, the university, and UAB Medicine. She's the founding director of the UAB Minority Health and Disparities Research Center. Thirty-four grand a month. A month, right. Incredible. At Auburn, Associate Provost and Vice President for Inclusion and Diversity and Chief Diversity Officer Taffy Benson Clayton earns $275,000 a year. Deputy Chief Diversity Officer, Juwan Robinson, one hundred and eighteen thousand dollars a year. Senior DEI Analyst, eighty six thousand. CCCE Director, I don't know what that stands for, eighty three thousand. And DEE Director, eighty three thousand. These things have just sprouted up. These DEI departments—they're paying a ton of money. Will you please tell me exactly what it is they do, how they contribute to the overall quality and value in the education experience at these universities? Help me understand that. What are they getting for this? What is this producing? What's the outcome that's that's, uh, being generated on the other side?
1: More ammunition for the grievance industry.
2: Okay, so this article, I won't go through all of them, goes on to list the those in the same department, the DEI department at uh, University of Alabama, University of Alabama-Birmingham, Auburn. So this is all, by the way, originally reported by AL.com. That's pretty widely read publication in the state of Alabama. And they did a little research on where all this money's going. I know Shad White, the auditor of Mississippi, is starting to make some rumbling about that as well. What are the taxpayers getting for this? What are students getting for this and their families that are spending money to go to college? Is this a priority for them? What's what's the value proposition? It's, like, it's almost like we're just creating jobs And checking boxes. Let's create this department, and let's staff it with all these people. Let's pay them a whole bunch of money. Call it a day and say, there's our woke insurance. Don't come after us. We've got a DEI department. Look at all these people we have and the money we're spending. That's how important it is to us. What did you say, 132? 137. (laughs) At Ohio State. 137. What do they do?
1: Increase the cost of tuition, man. Got to pay them somehow.
2: I, I'm looking for some results, some output.
1: That's racist.
2: Oh, I see. Oh gosh. And this is across the country. We're not just speaking. this. This is just one report on one state. Uh, it's going on in Florida too, even under Ron DeSantis' knows. He knows it. He's trying to root it out. It's incredible stuff going on. Florida State, University of Florida. What's going on here, too? It's going on here? You know it is. I did see where, I believe, UMC dropped their transgender clinic. You see that? The uh, for I believe we're also providing services to minors as well. I just scratch my head, I really do, folks, how in the world did we get here, and how unproductive this is, and I, I'm worried about our economy, our out-of-control spending and debt, I'm worried about our foreign adversaries, and uh, their efforts to gain global superiority and replace us as the superpower on the planet? That's what I'm worried about. Am I worried about the wrong things? Or should I be worried about pronouns?
1: Nobody should be worried about pronouns. If we could just get over this ridiculousness and quit playing into the fanciful ideas and unreality of crazy people, we'd be a lot better off as a society. Unbelievable. You can call yourself
2: Dracula, but it doesn't make you a vampire. (laughs) That's a good one. We got a lot of text on the C Spire text line. We'll get to those when we return in the Element Well Studios.
0: It's time for Middays with Gerard Gibbert on Super Talk Mississippi.
2: Temptations, bumping us into this segment here on Middays. We are once again in the Element Wealth Studios today on In a Mississippi Minute with Steve Azar. You'll hear an interview with Tim Bixler of the Delta Center Stage Community Theater. In a Mississippi Minute with Steve Azar is presented by VisitMississippi.org. You can hear the show each Thursday and Friday, 1 to 2 p.m. on most Super Talk Mississippi stations. So, uh, folks, don't pay attention to what comes out of my mouth, says CC in Senatobia, I believe, uh, sort of quoting what Joe Biden would say. Just focus on how cool I look with my Ray-Bans on. I look really cool. That's what he said the other day, right? He didn't want his legacy to be that he wears Ray-Bans and eats chocolate, as he says, chocolate chip ice cream. <laughs> Thomas in Greenwood says, what's wrong with saying if you want high-speed Internet, move to a place with population density that makes it feasible? Let's see, a couple other things. Thomas is not happy about the bill that passed the House that would authorize raising the debt ceiling, but also curb uh, many uh, spending Elements as well not happy about that thinks that we should not raise the debt ceiling, which means we would default on prior obligations, which would uh, honestly tip the entire global economy into a catastrophic state.
1: Thomas has always been a bit of an anarchist, though.
2: Yeah, I mean, I get it. I understand what he's saying. I don't like it either. But I also know that, in effect, we sign contracts. We sign contracts to pay our bills in exchange for various goods and services we got as taxpayers. We've got to pay the bills. So I know he likes to always kind of measure things on whether or not it's conservative. That's fine. Well, it's not conservative to default on your obligations. I don't consider that conservative. That's stealing, honestly, it's what it is. I don't like the fact that we have these bloated obligations that now we've got to satisfy. I don't like that. And I wish we would have a serious discussion at the federal level about reforming our out-of-control spending. But right now, we got to address more urgent situation. And I think Kevin McCarthy... Is, uh, is prudent for proposing really minimal spending cuts, honestly, in exchange for going along with increasing the debt ceiling so we can pay our bills.
1: We it comes all. back to the, the simplest form of game theory. Yeah. In politics, you have to win an election in order to even have a chance to impose your political will. If you don't win
2: an election, you
1: don't have any chance.
2: Right. And so the risk is if you just allow the government to shut down and then you default on paying these bills and you cause pain in doing so is that accomplishing which what you just described does that better position those who do have an interest in reforming spending and getting our fiscal house in order and financial house more stable does that support that does it does it aid in achieving that objective or does it hurt it i submit it hurts
1: in a vacuum it might help in the real world it hurts tremendously
2: yeah, i think so too because it gets laid at your feet
1: that's exactly right
2: and again and the
1: left-loving media will ensure that the masses
2: see it that way no doubt about it and that's that's the risk of that. Uh, and on the rural broad- broadband thing, and I know we got some uh, some text on that, it's the new electricity. If my kids would have still been in school in Scott County during COVID, we, we would have had to drive to Forest for Service, that on the ceasefire Spire text line. And there was a couple of other things uh, related to that that I'm looking for. Uh, the biggest advantage to rural Internet is education-related. This is Philip and Starkville for kids that otherwise would be at a disadvantage. Of course, more net-based education versus books, et cetera. We created this, and it doesn't come cheap. And again, I, I'm not questioning the value of Internet access. That Obviously not questioning that. I, I'm just pointing out that it costs money, money we don't have. And nobody stood up and said, hey, before we allocate all this money for rural broadband access, billions, let's cut over here some other frivolous spending to offset that, just as a starting point. And that, by the way, still produces gigantic trillion-dollar deficits. It just at least keeps you even rather than just incrementing the deficit and the debt. That's, a, that's the only point I'm making, is that I, I know we... Mo- and so this is what happens on all spending. To to the left, for example, meals on wheels, got to have that. Can't do without it. You, you see the issue you get into, and that's when all the horse trading gets made, and we run up trillion and a half dollar deficits. It's Although
1: like, Manchin is learning how well horse trading ooh, goes behind man, the
2: scenes. Isn't he ever... He didn't get what he wanted out of that Inflation Reduction Act. Now he's calling for its repeal, and he's got stiff challengers. The former governor is leading him in the polls. You've seen this? By double digits. And I, I don't know who it is. I just saw a teaser on my phone. Someone else has jumped into the U.S. Senate race in the great state of West Virginia to challenge on the Republican uh, side Senator Joe Manchin, the incumbent. Somebody else jumped in. You're looking for that? I know that um, his name escapes me, the former governor, the uh, wealthy coal industry. Jim Justice? Yeah, Jim Justice. He's the former governor. Already in the race, already in the polls, up. I want to say by like 30 points or something over Manchin. Of course, Manchin, a Democrat, Justice, a Republican. Uh, but there's somebody else jumped in to challenge uh, Manchin. We'll look for that. Yeah, he is learning the hard way. He sold his soul out to support that dang Inflation Reduction Act. And now uh, he's, not, he's not seeing that the end of the bargain that was made with him to secure his vote is not being honored. I'm shocked by that, by the way. They just used him to get a vote and advance their agenda I'll oh, say it ain't so so again it's not a question of the value of having ubiquitous internet access absolutely and and just in the last 20 years the way this country has built out the internet to make it widely available pervasively available and incredibly affordable broadband even I mean, the price of of a connectivity has plummeted dramatically in the last twenty years. It's 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 the most excellent example of economic productivity. When you see the uh, the the production, the value, the services increase, improve, and the price goes down, that's the ultimate economic productivity model there. You get more, and it costs less. That's what we should all strive for, honestly. And and that's a, a stark example of that. Uh, so, sure, plenty of value, no question. And uh, needed to continue to advance society, education, business, etc. But it costs money we don't have. It's the only point I make what how do we pay for it? It's it's a you'd have to say it's a bit hypocritical to say I need all that, but by the way, you guys are spending too much money up there. You got to balance the budget. Oh, but give me that. I, and I'm 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 saying that in all seriousness that until we finally just say, gosh, this would be great to have, but we can't afford it, or this would be great to have, you guys need to cut something else before you sign off on that. We just don't see that. Um, and and the left has their their wish list of things. We can't do without those. So you got both the left and the right saying we're not going to touch Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid. Well, that's 70% of spending. Then you get into the other 30%, and the Republicans say we can't touch defense. Well, that's 15%. Now you got 15% left. That's non-defense domestic discretionary spending. And the Democrats say you can't touch that. So what the hell can you touch? That's 100% of it. There's no agreement, no consensus, no alignment whatsoever. Thus, $1.75 trillion of deficit this year. $31 trillion of debt. $15 trillion in the making over the next 10 years. Added to the debt. Steely Dan pumping us out here. Was that on the all-hit request line, I think? Appreciate that, Rhino. Coming back, final segment, hour two, and a whole hour left afternoon. Stay with us.
0: Three. Come on, come on. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. All right, we are.
2: The theme song from Tour of Duty. If expanded, Penny and Winona, if expanded, internet capacity really is for educational purposes. Why can't some of the money from the lottery that goes to education fund it at least partly? It's a good question, and and uh, so the short answer is it's a teeny tiny fraction of the money you need. I mean, a teeny tiny infinitesimal fraction. Talking about the total net proceeds. Generated by the Mississippi Lottery Corporation. It comes in at about $128, $29 million. Two full years of operations, that's where it's been, um, a year. And the first $80 million goes to the State Highway Fund, and anything in excess of that goes to the Education Enhancement Fund, and, the, and that is uh, a law, the EEF, that establishes uh, formulas, includes formulas of how that DAB of money that the lottery contributes to the fund alongside what is allocated to it by the le- legislature, appropriated, and then there, and how that gets divvied out. It, it could be used uh, under the Education Enhancement Fund uh, for certain capital investment. But that doesn't fund, again, Penny, it's, it's a different issue. That would fund uh, infrastructure, assets, et cetera, inside the school buildings. But the actual installation of fiber and cable and infrastructure from the Internet service provider, typically in the rural areas that would be uh, electric co-ops, that's who's largely responsible and involved in that. They're essentially entering the Internet access business, the Internet service provisioning business, uh, which was uh, enacted into law two years ago, three years ago by the state allowing ECAs. I think we have, what, 24 in the state of Mississippi, many of whom have taken advantage of that. But that's federal funding that comes to them to uh, cover the cost of the capital investment in provisioning rural Internet. So what we might fund from the lottery that would go directly to schools, school districts, would be really to cover their internal connections and infrastructure needed to then receive, if you will, the Internet from the provider, from the carrier, and then distribute that uh, into the schools and the school district. By the way, there's also a federal program known as E-Rate. That's been around, folks, since 1996. When you look at your cell phone bill, and you see the number of charges that most people just say, I don't know what the heck that is, you just pay your bill. But there's fees and charges tacked on to the to the service from the provider. And you'll see one of them says universal service fee. You familiar with that, Rhino? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So that's a, that's a piece of money, a chunk of money, that uh, goes to this kind of quasi-government organization known as the SLD, Schools and Libraries Division. And the SLD receives all that money that you pay on your telecommunication services, that those fees, those taxes, they then redistribute that back out to schools and libraries, public schools, K-12, and libraries for the purpose of uh, funding Internet access and for the purpose of building networks inside the school buildings to use the Internet access. You follow what I'm saying there? So you got... Just think about one big cable, if you will, visually, coming into a school building, and then how do you get that out to all the computers installed in the school, in the classrooms, in the administrative areas, in the libraries? you got to have networks in there to do that. That's what my company did, for example. And so that costs money uh, to do so. And you often have to have servers and security and all sorts of other uh, technology to provision that. And so the SLD... Uh, funds that, and that's through money you pay, fees tacked on to your cell phone bills, your, if you still have home phone service, telecommunication services as well. And here's how they do it. It's based on the number of students in a school that are enrolled in the federally subsidized school lunch program. So the more students you have, that are in that program, the more likely you are as a school to receive funding. The schools literally have to apply for the money. And the SLD funds specific projects in the school for the purpose of connecting the school to the Internet and paying for the Internet service. And the funding formula maps to... The number of the percentage of their student population on federally subsidized school lunch. If 80% are on the federally subsidized school lunch, SLD pays 80% of the project. The district pays the other 20%. This has been around since 1996. That's where that comes from. That's a totally different animal than the broadband provisioning to the building, if you will. It's time for Fox News and Super Talk News. After that, we got more talk. Stay with us. Welcome back, everyone, to Middays Live from the Element Wealth Studios on this Friday Eve. So on the C Spire text line, Larry says, I'm still trying to understand how folks that pay nothing get a tax refund or get more back than they even paid in. I can't go to Walmart and get a refund for a product I didn't buy. It's a good question, Larry, and and so the answer is, uh, there are, are a number of what are called tax credits. So the difference between a tax credit and a tax deduction, a tax deduction simply reduces your taxable, gross taxable income to compute and arrive at your your net taxable income. You make uh $100,000 a year, you've got eligible deductions at $20,000, and thus your taxable income is $80,000. Like a discount. Yeah. So a tax credit, on the other hand, is a dollar-for-dollar dollar offset of your tax liability. So let's say that you make $100,000, dollars you got $20,000 of deductions, you have $80,000 of taxable income, and let's just say that your, your tax liability is is $15,000, all right? And through the year, you've paid in $15,000, and you do your tax return, and then all of a sudden you apply these eligible tax credits, such as the uh, child tax credit, child care credits, earned income tax credit. They're, they're a number. Those are kind of the main ones there. Well, you paid in fifteen thousand, and you owe fifteen thousand, or your tax liability is fifteen thousand. But you haven't applied these credits, and you've got five thousand dollars of credits. And now you paid in fifteen; you only owe ten. They're going to send you, uh, they're going to send you five, right? So because you overpaid by five. All right, now think about a person who doesn't even make enough money to pay any taxes. Or they don't pay very much in taxes. Let's look at a different case. They make thirty thousand dollars. They got ten thousand dollars deductions. They make they have a taxable income of twenty thousand. They uh, apply the numbers to that, and they only owe a thousand. But now they got these child tax credits and earned income credits and child care credits and student credits, and I can't even remember, remember all of them. There's a, a litany of them. They got a thousand dollar tax liability, and they paid in a thousand. But now they got all these credits. Five thousand dollars of credits. The government's going to send you four. Maybe you had zero tax liability. You didn't. You didn't even get on the scale. You didn't tip the scale. You don't make enough money by the time you take your eligible deductions. Your tax liability is zero, and then you apply these credits, and they're five thousand bucks. The government's going to send you five thousand dollars. So during the COVID era when we had these stimulus payments, remember those? Those were reconciled, trued up on your tax return. They're credits, dollar-for-dollar credits. And so there are a lot of people in this country that don't even tip the scale to owe any income taxes, They have zero tax liability, but they're still eligible for these what are called refundable tax credits. Refundable means they don't just offset a tax liability, they're just your money. Whether you've got a tax liability or not, the government sends that money. Hence, last year, last tax year, that would be 2021, the government reported 61% of the households in this country Paid no income taxes, meaning they either didn't have a a tax liability or the refundable credits. I'm not talking about people got a refund. I mean, they had a liability, but by the time they applied the refundable credits, their liability went from uh, money you owe the government to a net gain of money the government was going to send you. It's welfare. It's redistribution. It's what it is. 61% of the households... 49% of the taxpayers in this country are responsible for 2.7% of the total taxes paid. And the top 1% of this country pay 47%. The top 50% pay 97%. The bottom 50% pay 2.7%. But that is deemed unfair. That's what Joe and the Democrats say. That's not fair. They don't pay their fair share. That top 50% that shoulder 97.3% of the the income tax burden? Oh, no, that's not fair. they got to pay 100%, I guess. What they really want, what they really want, it's to pay like 125%, where the 25% gets allocated to the bottom 50%, so they get more money from the federal government. That's what they want. That's what their policies call for. I hope that clarified it. So it's it's gets a little wonky into, into IRS and, and tax rules, but just quite simply, it really is just kind of a disguised form of welfare. It's a refundable tax credit. You don't have to even owe any taxes, and the government's still sending you this money. Just like the stimulus checks that uh, we dropped out of helicopters when Joe first took office. Some were passed, in fairness, under Trump as well. But Joe comes in and says, hold my beer, he had to do something and take credit for it, and he passed right off the bat a $1.9 trillion so-called COVID relief bill, the American Rescue Plan, and then all the smart economists said, no, it won't produce any inflation, it's transitory. And then a year later, we got 8% inflation. And wages, by the way, are 5% up, so you're not keeping up. And this is the kind of stuff I think Republicans really ought to pounce on and focus on. And, And while I'm all about cultural decay in this country, we talk about that a lot, and we and we share with you stuff that's going on that uh, we think are of interest that Americans need to know about it's crazy the the gender stuff is insane but I don't know that that's a winning strategy I think Republicans are too focused on those issues personally. I would like to see them focus more on what we were just talking about that's your money because like it or not this is not a, a this is not to say that you're in love with money, but the fact is, you got to have it. You can't do without it. And a lot of problems get solved when the economy is roaring with prosperity. Such as the left's dream of climate change and addressing climate change. It's prosperity. It's it's human innovation that is honestly set the standard in this country for how to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, but more importantly, our cities are just cleaner. Our waterways are just cleaner. They just are. And that's a function of innovation and prosperity that comes from it. It doesn't do any good to destroy the environment if that same environment is necessary for your business to thrive. (laughs) These corporations get that. Incredible. While listening to the program today, a, th- a thought came to me that maybe the Democrats are trying to create another minority to help further their control. I don't know. it's Any theory is plausible. Certainly control is, is, uh, is key, is uh, the main objective, no doubt about it. I'm an Intergy customer, so I get the pleasure of paying higher taxes for everyone else to have Internet connection. It's not nuts, but it used to be. And just to clarify, that's, that's actually not accurate, and here's what I mean by that. We didn't raise taxes to pay for rural broadband. There's no income taxes went up. There are no taxes on your energy bill to pay for rural broadband. That's the whole point I'm making. We don't have the money for it. We don't have the money for $1.5 trillion a year of what we spend. We don't have the money for it. And nobody will ever just be honest about that. Rather, think about it. We send our elected officials to Washington. You got to bring home the bacon. And I know I beat this horse to death, but that's what happens with respect to all 435 in the House and all 100 in the Senate. Get up there and bring home that bacon, but you be fiscally responsible and balance the budget. It's true and as long as all 535 know that that's their path to political fu- their future and, and political durability they're going to keep doing it it's it's a tough one but how do we say no i can do without that nobody will it's you know if we look at things and say well that's that affects me this way well, we got to have that well, so does everybody else. And you add all that together, and you got a $1.5 trillion deficit and $31 trillion in debt. It's been building up for quite some time. We're in the Element Well Studios. I saw somebody mention Moore's Law on here. We'll talk about that when we come back. And we're in the Element Well Studios. Moore's Law, this is really just kind of a principle. Gordon Moore, uh, the co-founder of uh, a semiconductor and also involved in the creation of Intel. Most people know who those guys are. The maker of microchips and other sorts of silicon-based electronics. It was, a, I think, it was a night in the '60s, sometime, as I recall. And basically, he just observed that we're able to increase the density of integrated circuits uh, on a wafer, on a chip, in in the space on the silicon, doubles every two to three years. And it was really just a, a statement about how the Technology around the design of ICs, integrated circuits, silicon wafers, embedding those on the chip surface, how it just continues to improve. And so it goes back to what we were talking about with respect to connectivity. We get more as it improves, and it costs less. And so we get greater benefit, greater utility, greater value, and we pay less. That's like the ultimate... Economic productivity problem. Uh, Televisions, right? Flat screen, high resolution um, LED plasma TVs.
1: There is a little bit of pushback on Moore's Law, though, because there has been a slight slowdown. There has. It hasn't quite doubled at the same rate it was. That's right.
2: Well, and that's because it was so rapid. Right. And you knew that eventually you'd start to plateau a little bit. But you could apply that same principle, say, to artificial intelligence, which oh, yeah. is kind of the, the current thing in the technology world. It's obviously um, sweeping the technology world. Walmart, I saw, is now using AI for procurement, replacing procurement analysts, doing that really which is just heads-down spreadsheet-type work, and it's being replaced by bots and AI that are doing procurement for the company. So, again, a, a, a good, positive, valuable use of the innovation as opposed to evil use of it, which is, I think, always associated with novel technology. I, I can think of no better example than nuclear power, nuclear fission, uh, as one has got, obviously, very positive benefit from splitting atoms to produce energy, and then there's the other one that you can make bombs out of it. Similar deal. So, the connectivity, certainly no example. This is why the whole idea of net neutrality, which is just the government getting involved in regulating how Internet service providers build their networks and prioritize traffic on their, those networks. Oh, if we don't do this, the cost of Internet access is going to go to $1,000 a month. No. Just the opposite. Went down. Went down by orders of magnitude. And guess what? It's faster. It's more plentiful. It's more abundant because the government stayed out. They're still pushing for it. You know, net neutrality. They just can't stand to see every
1: single talking point they espouse screams of Freudian projection. Exactly right. If we get control of the internet, it'll cost you a thousand dollars. Yeah, exactly. The government is the most inefficient. Arbiter of anything, no doubt.
2: So, on the ceasefire tax line, I understand what you're saying about the debt ceiling, but when it comes to rural broadband, we do need it because not every factory can go inside a large world. Part of the states were often need where it often needs to go um, in today's marketplace. High-speed internet is a must-have when it comes to economic development and new and expanding industry. Uh, let's see, some manufacturers need to be in a more rural area. I-, I got it. Siri messed up, says, Dave says, but also need the broadband to compete in the world market. I- again, I- I'm i not arguing against the value proposition of broadband internet. Whatsoever. I made a living on that. So I'm not arguing that. I'm simply pointing out that we're embracing this. Oh, this is a great use of taxpayer money and i'm not arguing that it is isn't or is one way or another i believe it it does have obvious incredible value to society the internet does of course i'm simply pointing out all we did was lap that onto our debt to pay for it we didn't raise taxes for it And the amount you're paying on your bill for the so-called Internet services is not covering the massive investment in provisioning it, getting it to you physically.
1: Which I would argue the biggest danger in spending so much money on something like fiber, a rollout of fiber to rural Internet, is Moore's Law. No doubt. We may be looking five years in the future, which is not all that long in the future in the grand scheme of things. And fiber may be the same as what copper was. We may have drones flying around the clock for line-of-sight Internet service
2: provision. Sure. Satellite, fixed wireless, all sorts of new technologies coming out. Mesh networks. Absolutely. I mean, that's just a a function of of the evolution of uh, those sorts of technologies. I agree. And of course it's it's not a fast process. I mean it takes time to physically install all that stuff. I'm not being critical. I'm just stating reality. It's it's not fast. And you think about the amount of money to get broadband internet to one remote address. It's a bunch. And there's no way that that address could afford to pay for that in their monthly bill. It's just not possible. So, again, I'm not down on the value of broadband Internet in serving our rural areas whatsoever. I'd support it. I just wish that at the same time we're enacting legislation to fund such endeavors, that we also said, but you know what, we only got X amount of money, so we're going to have to cut over here. Man, that would be met with all sorts of resistance. And um, everybody that wants the government to spend money for some purpose that benefits them, of course they're going to say, yeah, this is valuable to me. This is necessary. It's good. And I'm not faulting them for that. But it's like uh, if you look at the gigantic budget of the federal government and all the line items, for the most part – There are people out there that say, yep, got to have that. Can't do without it. And all that gets blended into this monstrosity, $1.7 trillion omnibus bill, thousands of pages. And then guess what? The CBO says, yeah, it looks like you're going to run a $1.75 trillion deficit this year. When do we ever have a serious conversation? That's the point about... This is not sustainable. we got to do something. And the consequences are continued rampant inflation. Because we just introduced more money that we didn't really produce, we just print it into the economy, into the money supply, and that has an inflationary impact, even though all those smart PhDs in the Biden administration said, no worries, don't worry about that. They're about as smart as... Energy Secretary Jennifer Granholm, who thinks we can power the entire U.S. military on electricity, all of our weaponry and, and assets, by 2030, seven years, we're going to convert the entire Oh yeah, that's totally possible. I gotta just tell you, she's grossly unqualified for that job. Of course, if they hired anybody that is qualified, if you look at the cabinets. Again, they're just chess pieces. One of them, one of those. She's not qualified. It's clear. Remember, she even got asked a question about how many barrels of oil we produce a day. I can't tell you that. Wait, you're just the Secretary of Energy here. And she's the one that made that goofy YouTube video, gasoline, leave it in the ground. We played it here on the show. That. It is cringeworthy. <laughs> it's beyond cringeworthy. It used to be the governor of Michigan, which, by the way, not good news coming out of Michigan for Republicans. You know they swept the um, the uh, the elections at the state level have have the trifecta. The Democrats do, and then there was the most expensive Supreme Court, state Supreme Court race in history. And now it's being reported that there's conflict and dysfunction in the GOP in Michigan. And they're out of money. And why is this important? Because we got a presidential election coming up. And that is a swing state that I think is essential to win, to carry, to get to the White House. And at this point, that looks like virtually impossible. Not good. Coming right back here. Half an hour left on middays. Please stay with us.
0: middays with Gerard Gibbert. It is on. On Super Talk Mississippi.
2: The Godfather says fees are nothing but taxes. Call them what they are, referring to the universal service fee, USF, you see on your phone bill. Ben from Madison says, I remember you said it was unlikely McDaniel and Hoseman would debate. Do you expect the same with respect to Governor Reeves and Democrat Brandon Presley? I think it's a little different, Ben, in a, in a general election. Uh, I think there's a greater than 50 percent probability we would see a debate between the governor and uh, Brandon Presley. With respect to primary debates, however, I think it's unlikely. I think we will not see a debate between the candidates there. I believe there are four that have filed to run for lieutenant governor as Republicans, besides the lieutenant governor, Chris McDaniel. Um, Jason Quick Shane, Quick, Shane Quick, pardon me, and then can't remember her first name, Longino, as well. So I, I don't, Ben. I don't think we'll see that. Tim in Cleveland says, I would love to drive a Mercedes, and I could use it to do my job, but I can't afford it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we have to sort of adhere to those realities, do we not, Tim? But the federal government does not. Not ever does it come up when they're debating programs. Do they say, well, gee, do we have enough money to pay for this? Where Where are the accountants to help us out with that? That never comes up, ever. Unbelievable. I would say, with respect to the rural Internet thing, um, somehow we got to be able to measure the benefit. I mean, quantify it. So I, I get it that you need Internet access if you in, in the rural areas if you expect to attract certain industry into those areas. But who's going to track that? Like, okay, before we had rural Internet, the new economic development projects were X, and after it's Y – And this is the value that contributed to the state with respect to jobs and and, in taxes and just uh, overall economic activity. Who tracks that? And it's a serious question that that I've posed numerous times. It seems like we just enact that sort of stuff and just go away. Okay, you got it. Next, it's a serious question, and. I I think it also begs the question, are there pending economic development projects where suitors are saying, gosh, if you just had broadband internet, we're coming? And maybe there are. I'm not saying they're not. I would just be curious to know about that. Because, yeah, and then put the numbers to it. We're going to make X investment, and that's going to return... Why? To the taxpayers as a result of making that investment because we were able to land that project. I, I'm curious more than anything just to understand that because, yeah, it's a no-brainer in, in that case. If it weren't for Elon Musk, Northeast Madison County would have never had high-speed Internet. I'm not sure with respect to his satellite-based Internet service. That's what's being referred to there. Bo says, I live in a rural area and I am lucky enough to have T Mobile Tower half a mile from our house. We have unlimited wireless internet and decent speed. Three or four devices are running at a time and we have no problem streaming all of our entertainment. Interesting. Good to hear. And there are other carriers as well that have fixed wireless uh, internet. It's, I know some folks that also are subscribers and have reported positively on that. Larry and my says you don't fear AI and something like Skynet. I'm not sure what you mean by fear, Larry. What would I be fearful of?
1: Not really anything to be afraid of at this point. I mean the greatest fear at this point in the progress of AI technology is the incompetence of your fellow human beings in recognizing what is and is not AI. But the AI itself is still in the first stage of development, the artificial narrow intelligence, where you could confuse, in in the example of Skynet, say the current technology AI right now decided somehow it wanted to go rogue. You could confuse it with something as simple as a sentence like, why does the basket of oranges cost purple? (laughs) Because it can't compute it, it can't comprehend it. It would just spin its wheels and cycles, and you'd get nowhere. Yeah. the The real danger, quote unquote, of something like Skynet would come in the third phase of AI prog- progression. Right now, it's in the first, which is artificial narrow intelligence. That's right. The second one is artificial general intelligence. That's one. You're seeing a lot of people either claim. They've cracked AGI, or they're on the precipice of AGI, and it just doesn't seem like they're really telling the whole truth. That's going to be a major step forward. And then after that, you have artificial super intelligence, and that would be the risk of it becoming sentient.
2: And that is what Elon Musk has warned against. Correct. Uh, not the generative type. AI that is prevalent today, the Chat GPT from the OpenAI committee, and, and remember the GPT stands for Generative Pre-trained Transformer. So it it's been built, if you will, with human intelligence to somewhat attempt to not so much emulate that that discernment process, but to uh, just use its technology power to access information and then make some decision, some reasonable assessment about that, and then produce something for you. Some people might take
1: umbrage with this analogy, but I don't mean this in any ill will, but the current iterations of AI are like comparing a paralegal to a lawyer. Yeah. It's doing a lot of busy work, a lot of tedious work and it does it so that the lawyer can work with it. You can use AI to coalesce and gather information and put it into something that's easier to digest, but it still requires the discernment of someone to use it.
2: That's right. It's that next generation of discernment capability that uh, is a bit daunting, no doubt. It's a bit ominous and scary. And it's what we got to protect against. Now, what the federal government is considering—a regulatory framework specific to AI that would ensure that it's not biased, that it doesn't include—you you gave some examples of that. Doesn't include some sort of of um, skewing and bias and in um, leaning towards one philosophy, if you will, or one ideology, and it's somehow that gets incorporated or s- some sort of uh, just inherent, built-up, accumulated biases through human history that are also accessed and processed by the tool and used in creating output.
1: Yeah, because AI is really good at finding patterns what and exploiting those patterns. But when you apply those patterns in such a way to get incorrect information, they call it an AI hallucination, and right.
2: those still happen. That That's right, and and that's, um, that's some limitations, I guess you could call it that, from that perspective, but think about Walmart's application and just performing repetitive tasks is really what it is in the procurement world, and they've probably got some linear programming involved in that as well, where you're trying to minimize or maximize something. Uh, based on a series of constraints that would apply to procurement inventory management's another area as well
1: and an AI is only as good as its data set it's only as good as its training as its coaching like imagine an AI as a, a little league basketball player the data set is the coach imparting its, his wisdom on the AI well you have varying degrees of quality in coaching just
2: like you have varying degrees in quality of data right And that's why it's called pre-trained, pre-trained, transformer, pre-trained. And the transformer basically refers to the fact that you use natural language prompts. And by the way, the idea of natural language queries, that's been around 40 years. I remember developing those when I was a junior programmer so that people could just use plain English to essentially interact with technology tools, software, and get the data they're looking for. You got this And sh- before that it was a pipe dream. It was science that's fiction. Exactly right. Open the Pod Bay doors, Hal. But you'd have what we call a data warehouse, for example, just a trove of, of information. It's somewhat structured, maybe some unstructured, and you just throw questions at it in natural, plain English form and it returns results. And that's what these tools do. And their whole industries as you know, sprouting up around Helping you develop those prompts to maximize the, the power of the tools. Uh, they're consulting companies and third-party software companies. Here's you some prompts to use for, for various tasks, like writing an ad, for example. Coming right back with a final segment on Middays in the Well Studios.
0: Is with Gerard. Good for America. Good for fans of justice and truth. Good for us. Super Talk, Mississippi. This is what we stand for.
2: We are back in the Element Well Studios final segment on this Friday Eve. Jeff in Forrest County wants us to know if not for the federal government funding, the South would still not have electric power. It's still capitalism because private corporations still make big money. Well, Jeff, uh, you're not really hearing the point here, and and uh, which I'll get to in a second. But but secondly, electric co-ops that are going to provide these services are not for-profit corporations. They're co-ops. They're not. Now, it is true that there are a lot of products and technologies used in the provisioning of Internet service, even in the last mile, that are made by private corporations. The fiber, the conduit, the electronic infrastructure, all the equipment used. So I accept that. But that's not the point. I think it's being lost here. My point is, we simply added to the debt. Every single dollar we spend over and above what we take in is deficit spending and gets lapped onto our debt. That's all I'm trying to say here. So, is this a good use of taxpayer money? Well, yeah, we could argue it is. Is it reasonable? talking about extending broadband internet to the rural areas of the country, not just Mississippi, the country. Is somebody going to measure the return on that investment? No. I doubt it. Is it reasonable for taxpayers to say, hey, what do we get out of that? It's no different than when government provides concessions, fees in lieu of, etc., tax abatements to Private companies that um, receive those in exchange for some investment in the state. Continental Tire comes to mind not far from here. Significant concessions there made by the state to attract them, to locate their plant here, to hire people. And yeah, there there are certain, uh, certain thresholds they have to hit to receive some of those uh, concessions. And uh, and that's because it's an attempt to, it's an effort to assure the taxpayers receive their benefits. So you're missing the point here, Jeff, honestly. And, and the only point I'm trying to make is we don't have the money for that, or most everything else we spend money on, certainly new, any new programs, and that goes for defense. We added $150 billion a year to defense spending, and Republicans in the Washington have said. Oh, yeah, we got to do that, and, and I don't know. All I know is we don't have the money for it. I'm not smart enough to know what the right figure is to spend on defense. I'll admit, I, I lack the expertise. Do I believe there's lots of wasteful spending in defense? Sure. I don't think you can spend the um, $850 billion a year and not have someplace buried in there that's unnecessary. And there's already been audits that have shown that the Pentagon can't account for a few trillion dollars. Yeah, the Pentagon hasn't passed an audit yet. Yeah. So, yes, it, so I can't just, I guess, align with the Republicans there and say, I'm a hard no against any cuts to defense spending. Well, before I sign off on more, can you show me that we're really efficiently spending what we're giving you? And can you account for all the money we gave you? And the answer to that is, no, they can't. But the generals stand up there and say, we got to have it. And the Republicans say, yeah, i got to get re-elected, and most voters think we need to spend more money on the military, including Donald Trump, who still brags about it. Our military was decimated under Barack Obama, and I think there's truth to that. And he increased spending on it. But we didn't have the money to pay for it. When do we ever have the conversation about, hey, we don't have the money to pay for this? Because the left will say, well, we just got to tax the rich. And the right will say, well, here's some sort of token cuts, which is really what this GOP bill does. Still going to generate, according to the CBO, $15 trillion uh, add to the debt over 10 years. And the left says, well, if it weren't for those Trump tax cuts to all the wealthy and those greedy corporations, we wouldn't have deficits. Wrong. That's about one year's worth of deficits over 10. And you're not accounting for the fact that that actually increased revenues, which we've discussed. They don't want to get into the, the details of that math, because it doesn't fit their narrative. That's all I'm trying to say is, we don't have the money. Somehow, something's got to give and break, and we got to figure out a way to at least start addressing that. And I applaud uh, Kevin McCarthy. He's trying, he's starting, yet he's going to get no cooperation in the Democrat-controlled Senate, and the president has already said it's dead on arrival, arrival that it's got no chance somewhere in between there. Gary and the Berg said, thanks for playing the stones today. Oh, by the way, Tiffany Longino. Thank you, Sharon and Brandon. I apologize, Miss Longino, for not remembering your name there when I was listing out the candidates for lieutenant governor on the Republican side. Delbert Hoseman, Chris McDaniel, Shane Quick, Tiffany Longino. Love to see a debate. I would be honored to have the privilege of moderating such a debate. Love to do that. We're out of here today in the Element Well studios again tomorrow. Until then, stay safe and God bless.
0: A Super Talk Mississippi Media Production.